0: Chapter 29 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Of title by Succession, Marriage and Judgment. In the present chapter, we shall take into consideration three other species of title to goods and chattels. 5. The fifth method, therefore, of gaining a property in chattels, either personal or real, is by succession, which is, in strictness of law, only applicable to corporations aggregate of many, as dean and chapter, mayor and commonality, master and fellows, and the like, in which one set of men may, by succeeding another set, acquire a property in all the goods, movables, and other chattels of the corporation. The true reason whereof is, because, in judgment of law, a corporation never dies, and therefore the predecessors, who lived a century ago, and their successors now in being, are one and the same body corporate. Which identity is a property so inherent in the nature of a body politic, that even when it is meant to give away anything to be taken in succession by such a body, that succession need not be expressed, but the law will of itself imply it, so that a gift to such a corporation, either of lands or of chattels, without naming their successors, vests an absolute property in them so long as the corporation subsists. And thus, a lease for years, an obligation, a jewel, a flock of sheep, or other chattel interest will vest in the successors by succession, as well as in the identical members to whom it was originally given. But, with regard to sole corporations, a considerable distinction must be made. For if such sole corporation be the representative of a number of persons, as the matter of an hospital, who is a corporation for the benefit of the poor brethren, an abbot, or prior, by the old law before the Reformation, who represented the whole convent, or the dean of some ancient cathedral who stands in place of and represents in his corporate capacity the chapter. Such sole corporations as these have in this respect the same powers as corporations aggregate have, to take personal property, or chattels, in succession. And therefore, a bond to such a master, abbot, or dean, and his successors, is good in law, and the successor shall have the advantage of it, for the benefit of the aggregate society, of which he is in law, the representative. Whereas, in the case of sole corporations, which represent no others but themselves, as bishops, parsons, and the like, no chattel interest can regularly go in succession, and therefore, if a lease for years be made to the Bishop of Oxford and his successors, in such case his executors or administrators, and not his successors, shall have it. For the word successors, when applied to a person in his politic capacity, is equivalent to the word heirs in his natural. And as such, at least for years, if made to John and his heirs, would not vest in his heirs, but his executors. So, if it be made to John, Bishop of Oxford, and his successors, who are the heirs of his body politic, it shall still vest in his executors, and not in such his successors. The reason of this is obvious, for, Besides that the law looks upon goods and chattels as of too low and perishable a nature to be limited either to heirs or such successors as are equivalent to heirs, it would also follow that if any such chattel interest granted to a sole corporation and his successors were allowed to descend to such successor, the property thereof must be in abeyance from the death of the present owner until the successor be appointed. And this is contrary to the nature of a chattel interest, which can never be in abeyance or without an owner. But a man's right therein, when once suspended, is gone forever. This is not the case in corporations aggregate, where the right is never in suspense, nor in the other sole corporation before mentioned, who are rather to be considered as heads of an aggregate body than subsisting merely in their own right. The chattel interest, therefore, in such a case, is really and substantially vested in the hospital, covenant, or chapter, or other aggregate body, though the head is the visible person in whose name every act is carried on, and in whom every interest is therefore said, in point of form, to vest. But the general rule, with regard to corporations merely sole is this that no chattel can go or be acquired by right of succession. Yet to this rule there are two exceptions. One in case of the king, in whom a chattel may vest by a grant of it, formally made to a preceding king and his successors. The other exception is, where by a particular custom, some particular corporation soul have acquired a power of taking particular chattel interests in succession and this custom, being against the general tenor of the common law, must be strictly interpreted and not extended to any other chattel interests than such immemorial usage will strictly warrant. Thus, the Chamberlain of London, who is a corporation sole, may, by the custom of London, take bonds and recognizances to himself and his successors for the benefit of the orphans fund, but it will not follow from thence, That he has a capacity to take a lease for years to himself and his successors for the same purpose, for the custom extends not to that, nor that he may take a bond to himself and his successors for any other purpose than the benefit of the orphan's fund, for that also is not warranted by the custom. Wherefore, upon the whole, we may close this head with laying down this general rule, that such right of succession to chattels is universally inherent by the common law in all aggregate corporations, in the king, and in such single corporations as represent a number of persons, and may, by special custom, belong to certain other sole corporations for some particular purposes, although, generally, in sole corporations no such right can exist. Six. A sixth method of acquiring property in goods and chattels is by marriage, whereby those chattels, which belonged formerly to the wife, are, by act of law, vested in the husband, with the same degree of property and with the same powers as the wife, when soul, had over them. This depends entirely on the notion of an unity of person between the husband and wife, it being held that they are one person in law so that the very being and existence of the woman is suspended during the coverture, or entirely merged and incorporated in that of the husband. And hence it follows that whatever personal property belonged to the wife before marriage is by marriage absolutely vested in the husband. In a real estate, he only gains a title to the rents and profits during coverture, for that depending upon feudal principles, remains entire to the wife after the death of her husband or to her heirs if she dies before him, unless, by the birth of a child, he becomes tenant for life by the courtesy. But in chattel interests the sole and absolute property vests in the husband, to be disposed of at his pleasure, if he chooses to take possession of them, for, unless he reduces them to possession by exercising some act of ownership upon them. No property vests in him, but they shall remain to the wife or her representatives after the coverture is determined. There is therefore a very considerable difference in the acquisition of this species of property by the husband according to the subject matter, viz. whether it be a chattel real or a chattel personal, and of chattels personal whether it be in possession or in action only. A chattel real vests in the husband, not absolutely, but sub-modo. As, in case of a lease for years, the husband shall receive all the rents and profits of it, and may, if he pleases, sell, surrender, or dispose of it during the coverture. If he be outlawed or attainted, it shall be forfeited to the king. It is liable to execution for his debts, and, if he survives his wife, it is to all intents and purposes his own. Yet if he has made no disposition thereof in his lifetime, and dies before his wife, he cannot dispose of it by will. For, the husband having made no alteration in the property during his life, it never was transferred from the wife, but after his death she shall remain in her ancient possession, and it shall not go to his executors. So it is also of chattels personal, or chooses, in action, as debts upon bond, contracts, and the like. These the husband may have if he pleases, that is, if he reduces them into possession by receiving or recovering them at law. And, upon such receipt or recovery, they are absolutely and entirely his own, and shall go to his executors or administrators, or as he shall bequeath them by will and shall not revert in the wife. But if he dies before he has recovered or reduced them into possession, so that at his death they still continue chooses in action, they shall survive to the wife, for the husband never exerted the power he had of obtaining an exclusive property in them. And so, if an astray comes into the wife's franchise, and the husband seizes it, it is absolutely his property. But, if he dies without seizing it, his executors are not now at liberty to seize it, but the wife or her heirs. For the husband never exerted the right he had, which right determined with the coverture. Thus, in both these species of property, the law is the same, in case the wife survives the husband. But, in case the husband survives the wife, the law is very different with respect to chattels real and chooses in action. For he shall have the chattel real by survivorship, but not to choose in action, except in the case of arrears of rent due to the wife before her coverture, which, in case of her death, are given to the husband by statute 32, Henry VIII, C. 37. And the reason for the general law is this, that the husband is in absolute possession of the chattel real during the coverture, by a kind of joint tenancy with his wife whereof the law will not wrest it out of his hands and give it to her representatives, though, in case he died first, it would have survived to the wife unless he thought proper in his lifetime to alter the possession. But a choosing action shall not survive to him, because he never was in possession of it at all during the coverture, and the only method he had to gain possession of it was by suing in his wife's right. But as... After her death, he cannot, as husband, bring an action in her right, because they are no longer one and the same person in law. Therefore, he can never, as such, recover the possession. But he still will be entitled to be her administrator, and may, in that capacity, recover such things in action as become due her before or during the coverture. Thus, and upon these reasons, stands the law between husband and wife with regard to chattels real and chooses in action. But as to chattels personal, or chooses in possession, which the wife hath in her own right, as ready money, jewels, household goods, and the like, the husband hath therein an immediate and absolute property, devolved to him by marriage, not only potentially but in fact which never can again revert in the wife or her representative. And, as the husband may thus generally acquire a property in all the personal substance of the wife, so, in one particular instance, the wife may acquire a property in some of her husband's goods, which shall remain to her after his death, and shall not go to his executors. These are called her paraphernalia, which is a term borrowed from the civil law, and is derived from the Greek language signifying something over and above her dower. Our law uses it to signify the apparel and ornaments of the wife, suitable to her rank and degree, which she becomes entitled to at the death of her husband over and above her jointure or dower, and preferably to all other representatives, and the jewels of a peeress, usually worn by her, have been held to be paraphernalia, Neither can the husband devise by his will such ornaments and jewels of his wife, though during his life perhaps he hath the power, if unkindly inclined to exert it, to sell them or give them away. But if she continues in the use of them, till his death, she shall afterwards retain them against his executors and administrators and all other persons except creditors where there is a deficiency of assets and her necessary apparel is protected even against the claim of creditors. 7. A judgment in consequence of some suit or action in a court of justice is frequently the means of vesting the right and property of chattel interests in the prevailing party. And here we must be careful to distinguish between the property, the right of which is before vested in the party, and of which only possession is recovered by suit or action and property, to which a man before had no determinate title or certain claim, but he gains, as well the right as the possession, by the process and judgment of the law. Of the former sort are all debts and chooses in action, as if a man gives bond for twenty pounds, or agrees to buy a horse at a stated sum, or takes up goods of a tradesman upon an implied contract to pay as much as they are reasonably worth. In all these cases, the right accrues to the creditor and is completely vested in him at the time of the bond being sealed and the contract or agreement made, and the law only gives him a remedy to recover the possession of that right, which already in justice belongs to him. But there is also a species of property to which a man has not any claim or title whatsoever till after suit commenced and judgment obtained in a court of law. Where the right and the remedy do not follow each other as in common cases but accrue at one and the same time and where before judgment had no man can say that he had any absolute property either in possession or in action of this nature are one such penalties as are given by particular statutes to be recovered of an action popular or in other words to be recovered by him or them that will sue for the same, such as the penalty of 500 pounds, which those persons are by several acts of parliament made liable to forfeit that, being in particular offices or situations in life, neglect to take the oaths to government, which penalty is given to him or them that will sue for the same. Now here it is clear that no particular person, A or B, has any right, claim, or demand in or upon this penal sum till after action brought. For he that brings his action and can bona fide obtain judgment first, will undoubtedly secure a title to it in exclusion of everybody else. He obtains an incohate, imperfect degree of property by commencing his suit, but it is not consummated till judgment, for if any collusion appears, he loses the priority he had gained. But otherwise, the right so attaches in the first informer that the king, who before action brought may grant a pardon which shall be a bar to all the world, cannot, after suit commenced, remit anything but his own part of the penalty. For by commencing the suit, the informer has made the popular action his own private action, and it is not in the power of the crown or of anything but parliament to release the informer's interest. This, therefore, is one instance where a suit and judgment at law are not only the means of recovering, but also of acquiring property. And what is said of this one penalty is equally true of all others that are given thus at large to a common informer or to any person that will sue for the same. They are placed, as it were, in a state of nature, accessible by all the king's subjects, but the acquired right of none of them, Open, therefore, to the first occupant, who declares his intention to possess them by bringing his action, and who carries that intention into execution by obtaining judgment to recover them. 2. Another species of property that is acquired and lost by suit and judgment at law is that of damages given to a man by a jury, as compensation and satisfaction for some injury sustained, as for a battery, for imprisonment for slander, or for trespass. Here the plaintiff has no certain demand till after the verdict, but when the jury has assessed his damages and judgment is given thereupon, whether they amount to 20 pounds or 20 shillings, he instantly acquires and the defendant loses at the same time a right to that specific sum. It is true that this is not an acquisition so perfectly original as in the former instance. For here the injured party has unquestionably a vague and indeterminate right to some damages or other the instant he receives the injury, and the verdict of the jurors and judgment of the court thereupon do not in this case so properly vest a new title in him as fix and ascertain the old one. They do not give but define the right. But, however— Though strictly speaking, the primary right to a satisfaction for injuries is given by the law of nature, and the suit is the only means of ascertaining and recovering that satisfaction, yet, as the legal proceedings are the only visible means of this acquisition of property, we may fairly enough rank such damages or satisfaction assessed under the head of property acquired by suit and judgment at law. 3. Hither also may be referred, upon the same principle, all title to costs and expenses of suit, which are often arbitrary, and rest entirely in the determination of the court, upon weighing all circumstances, both as to the quantum, and also, in the courts of equity especially, and upon motions in the courts of law, whether there shall be any costs at all. These costs, therefore, when given by the court to either party, may be looked upon as an acquisition made by the judgment of law. End of chapter 29